0: This is episode 162 of the News podcast, a digest on anarchist activity, ideas, and conversations from the previous week on Anarchist News. We hope it's useful to and fun for anarchists and the anarcho-curious. Give us feedback and constructive criticism by email at podcast at anarchistnews.org. For more information and usually some good commentary, see you at your favorite non-sectarian anarchist site with commentary, anarchistnews.org.
1: Editorial Health in the Time of the Gods Listening to the oh-so-wonderful interview with Kevin Tucker, which you'll hear more about later, I was struck by something like a stock anarchist or perhaps specifically green anarchist response to the current pandemic, namely the this-is-what-civ-gets-you-ha-ha-told-you-so loser's reaction. At first glance, it's a pretty agreeable conclusion to come to. Society, or whatever portion of humanity you feel like blaming, is in a desperate race to extract infinite energy, resources, and profit on a very finite planet. We globalize trade, industrialize farming, and generally ignore or actively degrade healthful ways of moving about the world. And so, because of human folly, we suffer. But what assumptions are slipped in with this view of the pandemic? And how does it limit our thinking and responses to the situation? In terms of under-theorized assumptions, the most obvious is that we rely on metaphysical and technocratic understandings of the world to come to this conclusion. We rely on the CDC, epidemiologists, and various other experts to inform our view of the virus's danger. We rely on biology and ecology to understand the virus's origins, at the center of which are the very structures of Western genocide thinking that we oppose. In light of this, how can we think differently? To be clear, I'm not pushing some kind of plandemic narrative here where we all need to follow the money of who benefits from COVID. As surely as anything, predators will look to benefit from crisis however it manifests, and perhaps those involved in crisis anarchism could take note of this. Instead, I want to hold on to general human ignorance and the idea that we probably know far less than we think we do. And so now I'll begin with my questions that certainly don't have answers. How do we have a different relationship to the virus? How do we treat it differently? This would, I think, require a very different relationship to death, health, and sicknesses. For those responding to coronavirus by attempting to supplement the lack of PPE and trying to create widespread mutual aid networks, I commend you. But I also see that you are in the same crisis cycle as the rest of society. You are responding to death and sickness in the same ways as a denatured health system. We are all, very much including myself, failing to have a different relationship with the virus. And so, I think we could do better. Recently, a friend related one such possible relationship, namely treating the virus as a god. I don't know the details of that specific example but in my mind this comes close to how we would need to shift our thinking to think of the virus as an old one not as the vengeful god of christianity but instead an unknowable living being which perhaps just so happens to have the power to kill us in this view we may have pulled a god into our world but it's hard to say we truly created it or that our task is to destroy it and because this old one is not human it probably cares little for our lives and thus our deaths are not punishment but instead just consequences of its existence. We can't do battle with a god, but we can use it to change our lives. Perhaps this change could look like seeing death and sickness not as failures, but as part of life. Perhaps it could look like learning to live health again rather than consume it. Perhaps it could look like having a very different relationship to society as a whole versus those immediately around us. Perhaps it could look like seeing humans for what they may truly be, small pieces in a larger web, not masters, not necessarily destroyers, but slightly hairy, nervous creatures, moving in the same waters as all other life. And yet, I would still rather not die.
0: The worms crawl in and the worms crawl out. The ones that go in are lean and thin. The ones that come out are fat and stout. Your eyes fall in and your teeth fall out. Your brains come tumbling down your snout. Be merry, my friends, be merry. What's new this week? May Day 2020, snapshots from around the world, from Crimethink. Well, no wordplay in the title and no grandiosity. Look at that. This piece instead falls back on Marxist terminology and simplistic analysis. Ruling class, really? The cops are not ruling class, your family members who disagree with you are presumably not ruling class. This flattening of the enemy is part of the problem with CrimeThinks ideas at this point. But get in bed with IGD and wake up with fleas, I guess. Oops, where was I? So the attempt here is to do a survey of Mayday actions to see what works and what doesn't work, as if, because something worked in one place, it will work in another. Anticipating the day when there really is a human monoculture, I guess as if that will make things better for anarchists. Quote, Our enemies in the ruling class want to resume the functioning of the economy without permitting us any of the freedoms we need to defend ourselves from their impositions. All around the world, we saw police without any sort of protective gear, harassing and attacking properly masked demonstrators, blithely risking spreading the pandemic in the name of halting it. This underscores the foolishness of counting on state violence to protect us from a virus. Police have surely been one of the chief vectors via which the ve- virus has spread around the world and penetrated into our communities. We won't be safe until we are neither forced to engage in risky economic activities to survive, nor forced to remain confined and subservient to our rulers by mercenaries who don't care if we live or die," unquote. Per usual with activist posts, the questions I find most interesting are only alluded to. In this case, for example, the question of anonymity being a marker of responsibility and its relation to the use of cars, not anonymous generally, and how we identify each other versus the other. Quote, while this caravan was largely a show of power and unity and less a material disruption of the world, the possibilities of strategic caravan demonstrations are endless. A caravan of 30 cars could easily shut down an interstate, surround distribution centers for COVID-19 profiteers, picket striking workplaces and more. There is a strange inversion at play with this new tactic while wearing a mask is finally socially acceptable in everyday life now making anonymity easier we also find ourselves reduced to using our vehicles and demonstrations complete with their license plates it seems a necessary trade off at the moment better to take some risks and build an antagonism than to cede antagonism entirely to the virus denying death cultists who can't imagine anything better than going back to work unquote but these are questions activists don't have time for, obviously, as they are busy getting shit done. Oh, maybe they're addressing them amongst themselves. Could be.
1: Street Anarchy Part One, Two Anarchisms from Organize, UK, by Royman Rodriguez, a communist anarchist in Gran Canaria who posits a binary that he likes, contemplative anarchism versus combative anarchism. You'll be shocked to know that one is good, the other bad, and that he's for the good one. Quote. The contemplative anarchism lives through other people's lives. Its terrain is one of inward debate. It sets up to analyze, discuss, to anathematize engaged in endless or internal fights. Its feel is that of theory and stillness, be it of the committee, assembly or demonstration, of the social network or the burning of rubbish bins. A theoretician of the Molotov is not less contemplative than a theoretician on an office immobility as a way of life, pontification as the mode of operation, talks and the spreading of ideas is its natural environment, the place where it feels comfortable, incapable of transcending this habitat to get a taste of the pavement or the land. Anarchism itself is its battlefield, its object of dissection, the subject of its militancy. The contemplative anarchism is the childish and immature phase of the anarchist ideology, no matter how serious, respectable, and experimented it may look, unquote. I guess it's good to know that the commies-slash-activists-slash-organizers-slash-do-gooders feel the need to theorize themselves sometimes? That they also question what the fuck they're doing, even if it's only enough to stop for a second to justify brick wall head-knocking. I don't know. Is
0: that good? Mayday and the ongoing class struggle in Greece from Love and Rage Media, a quote, heterodox, unquote, news site based in New York, that mentions anarchist nowhere on its About Us page, but has taken the name of an anarchist federation that was disbanded in a flurry of non-anarchist politics. So take from that what you will. This piece is accredited to anarchist federation, Greece. So, okay. Not sure if it counts as an anarchist Greek group with a name that bland, but we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. This is another red article about how the working class, i.e. peons, get it worst when times are hard and the ruling class, i.e. the rich, are getting richer in those same times. Definitely sounds more Marxist commie than anarchist, but all reds sound the same to me. Quote, class solidarity, collectivization and organization are the only forces that can keep our order upright while making claims for the revolutionary overthrow of capitalism in the extremely unfavorable circumstances of the present, we consider it necessary to strengthen mutual assistance within the working class we trust the self-energy and self-organization of our class in this direction. Therefore, we consider that it is necessary to move toward the creation of mutual assistance structures, solidarity funds, to move in a coordinated and massive way, to refusal of payments, to exert pressure, to demand the necessary financial support for the working and poor people, but also to meet the absolutely necessary popular needs, food, housing, water, electricity, internet, by all means, unquote. So yeah. Also the same solutions as always. Yay. The comments approach an anarchist question, which is what makes mutual aid revolutionary, if anything, but then distractions happen.
1: For the popular classes of the world, pandemic, crisis, all times are times of struggle from Anarchismo. Okay, folks, I might be getting red exhaustion. I know it's only four stories in, but yet another summation of the global slash COVID-19 situation substituting popular classes for working classes, which I guess is a step in some direction closer to the world today. And of course, the first comment is someone complaining about that. Ha! There's a pretty extensive list of possible appropriate responses, none of them new, to the current situations, from promoting spaces of solidarity and mutual aid, huh? to restoring strategic alliances, ew, to planning for popular struggle after quarantine, What? To defending spaces that allow political action, etc., etc., jargony, etc. More jargon with your jargon, anyone? Quote In this situation where we converge with other forces in the struggle, we seek to build and energize processes of political work, always from the popular social basis in their practices, in their demands and aspirations. Within our popular organizations and through our capacity to struggle, we promote everything that accumulates class independence and popular autonomy. We build emancipatory power. We promote popular power that escapes the apparatuses and governmental strategies within capitalism, unquote.
0: Responsibility claim for domiciliary incendiary attacks. From Anarchists Worldwide. The translation of a claim of responsibility for some incendiary attacks against a bunch of status quo institutions by the anarchist groups of nocturnal visits. Now there's a real Greek group name. Quote, Greek state in the present historical conjuncture is coping with the interior enemy, applying the intensive strategy, imposing states of exemption and law and order doctrines, erecting monuments of victory against our imprisoned and prosecuted comrades, striving for the establishment of capitalist normality and the interception of every insurrectional move. It's our responsibility to develop a militant infrastructure and to carefully plan our next steps to the formation of a prepared anarchist movement able to stand as a barricade against a totalitarian capitalist attack. At the last months, the actions of individual and collective insurgency become more frequent, painting the nocturnal metropolitan canvas with fiery shines of arsons, deafening melodies of explosions and beams of successful conspiracies," unquote. Anyone else dig in the arson, etc. as art redefinition? So works for me.
1: Amazon van torched for autonomous, decentralized mayday from Anarchist worldwide on an action in LA County, California, quote, Amazon provides the cloud servers that hosts the investigative case management system, the database utilized by ICE and other federal agencies to compile public and private data to track and deport immigrants. Amazon plays a role in every raid, every family separation, and every death at the hands of ICE. It was the goal of this action to raise the stakes for companies like Amazon that provide critical border enforcement infrastructure, unquote. Also, surveillance. This action report doesn't mention mistreating their workers, but regardless, multitasking is my favorite.
0: June 11, 2020, International Day of Solidarity with Long-Term Anarchist Prisoners. From Anon, quote, June 11 is International Day of Solidarity with Marius Mason and all long-term anarchist prisoners. In the 16 years that this tradition has been observed, June 11th has facilitated support and action inspired by imprisoned anarchists, from noise demonstrations outside of jails to letter-writing nights, from fundraisers to arson. Setting aside this day is one way of remembering anarchists who are serving long prison sentences, generating support for them, and inspiring solidarity actions," unquote. There's a list of anarchist prisoners to write and pay attention to. Sean Swain's not on the list, which is curious, but no competition. Write an anarchist prisoner today. This post also draws attention to the situation faced by folks when they get out and by their families, and names some good charities addressing those needs.
1: Calling for Anarchists Global Solidarity Action from Anon, a call for support for anarchist prisoners in Tangerang and Malang, with links to mainstream news stories and some corrections regarding the misunderstandings in those stories about anarchist groups. Quote, While the state is trying to orchestrate a bullshit narrative into scapegoating the anarchists or the anarchist movement in general in Indonesia, in order to veil their own incompetency in dealing with the crisis and pandemic, we ask you, not for money or anything involving that, but to show your solidarity in whatever means. It can be graffiti, banner dropping, or most importantly to acknowledge every Indonesian consulate about the isolation and the arbitrary actions the police are doing to them."
0: Philippines, the continuing crackdown on anarchists from anarchist communist group. Terte, a known autocrat, is directly threatening specifically political groups and martial law. Quote, according to comrades who wish to remain anonymous for their own protection and safety, this has happened quietly. And that is, second martial is implemented silently and that the independent media, what there was of it, has been clamped down on with only state-controlled media allowed to operate. Our comrades go on to say, There is no means to let this out, what is happening in our community. No mainstream media that have documented what's really going on here. It's alarming. The community is made up of anarchists, punks, and other non-mainstream left, and in the past few months, they have been harassed, arrested, shot, and had their homes and meetings raided with everything from literature to electrical items such as computers, either confiscated or destroyed, unquote. Just when you were wondering about what is going on in Russia, you're reminded that autocracy is alive and well around the world, yay.
1: Mid-May discussion, what the virus said and eco-fascism from Viscera. Announcing the second conversation through Viscera, this time of two readings on COVID-19 and responses thereof. One, the well-received on a news called what the virus said and another on eco-fascism and the virus, which is irritating and slippery slopey. The conversation is happening May 17th, 2.30 Eastern Standard Time.
0: Food Not Bombs, What to Know About the Free Meal Collective from Teen Vogue by Elizabeth King. Last year sometime, this magazine did a not terrible piece on Emma Goldman, if I recall correctly. So you could argue that this is a step back on the radical scale since charity is not so radical, or you could argue that since it's a project that people can actually get involved with themselves, it's a step forward in this brand new scale of radness that I've never considered before. Seems to me like it's a wash. Lucky we don't rely on Teen Vogue for anything, right?
1: Damn Dirty Humans, Planet of the Humans, and Progressive Denial, from Gods and Radicals by John Halstead. Write-up of a few responses to the titular Michael Moore-produced documentary that has been causing waves lately. Halstead, summing up the film, says, quote, History is replete with the rise and fall of civilizations. The causes are familiar. Climate change, population growth, soil degradation, and widening social inequality." Our civilization is no more immortal than those that came before us. The only thing that is unique about ours is that while civilizations before us exceeded the carrying capacity of their regional land bases, ours is a global economy, so we are facing collapse, not just on a regional level, but on a planetary scale, unquote. The film seems to be some pretty standard anti-civ doom and gloom fare, most of which I find somewhat palatable, despite the author's attempt to convince me that not all is lost and that we can have hope and, quote, Small-scale, local-slash-decentralized, community-controlled uses of renewable energy, unquote.
0: No thanks. Call for worldwide solidarity with Revolutionary Struggle from Anarchists Worldwide. <clears throat> a history of the Greek group Revolutionary Struggle, and of the fight of t- group members Pola Ropa and Nikos Maziotis, specifically, as they are currently in prison and continue to fight the state from inside. There's also a list of past international actions in support of the two. Quote, even so, Ropa and Maziotis stand reliable, intense opponents against the most violent and totalitarian economic and political system in history. We consider it necessary to support, politically, morally, and materially, comrades who have defended their choices to fight for the revolutionary prospect and for the subversion and destruction of capital and state. Especially now that the transportation of our comrades to other prisons in Greece increases their needs in prison and in the middle of this emergency situation, It is not possible for us to raise enough financial support from our self-organized events. We are calling on you to join in our effort of supporting, mostly financially, our comrades."
1: The Self-Abolition of the Proletariat as the End of the Capitalist World from noncopyriot.com. An intensely Marxist, pro-anarchist article on why the proletariat is revolutionary or is nothing, and how the proletariat's revolutionary goal has to be to abolish itself. Get the author in a conversation with Frere DuPont, and let's move this conversation along. Quote, Indeed, because in the end it's not a matter of taking pride in being a proletarian, and fighting for a proletarian society, and even less for a proletarian state, alienation can't be destroyed through alienated means. That's to say, with the arms of the system itself, as it is believed by the partisans of the transition period, meaning the so-called socialism of state capitalism, whatever the path may be, since that is giving more power to power. On the contrary, it's a matter of assuming the fact of being a proletarian as a condition that is socially and historically imposed, as the modern slavery from which one must liberate themselves collectively and radically. It's a matter of ceasing to be an exploited and oppressed class once and for all, eliminating the conditions that make the existence of social classes possible. Given that the proletariat condenses all forms of exploitation and oppression within itself, At the same time as all forms of resistance and of radical alternative, capital, the state, and all forms of exploitation and oppression would be abolished, sex slash gender, race, nationality, etc., this is the social revolution, and without a doubt this will not be a magical occurrence that happens overnight in a pure and perfect manner, but a a historical and contradictory process which nevertheless will have this consistent foundation or will not be." So, Per usual, to the extent that this bypasses questions of identity, it might be helpful to some folks, and to the extent that it consolidates everything under one label, it might be unhelpful to some folks. And I'm sure its anarchy is not my anarchy, but at least the author is not actively trying to kill us yet.
0: Surviving a Pandemic, Tools for Addressing Isolation, Anxiety, and Grief, from Crimethink. This article on tactics and strategies for dealing with sadness, depression, loss, etc got a bunch of comments on A-News from posters talking about wanting and or planning to kill themselves. One such comment said, quote, The system is killing us by socially isolating and threatening us, on top of already having destroyed our support networks and sources of joy. Then it displaces the problem onto us by saying it's a resilience deficit, or lack of the right coping tools, etc. You know, there's one modeler saying there will be 800,000 suicides because of this in America alone way more than the COVID deaths or the lives supposedly saved, unquote. Alienation is an ongoing problem that just seems to get worse and worse as we go on. Part of that alienation is the sense that nothing we do makes any difference. While we're surrounded by the messages, some of them intensely promoted by crime think itself, that individuals can absolutely make a difference. I'm not anti-suicide myself, but I'm not that fond of giving up, though also not judging anyone who does. What suicides are not examples of just giving up, Check out Harold and mod if you haven't already, or maybe even if you have.
1: Audio and video, Civilization and the Coronavirus with Kevin Tucker. Two and a half hours from SoulCast. <laughs> oh yes, God, I'm so I nervous. listened to 2.5 hours of Soul <laughs> talking to Kevin Tucker, <laughs> so you don't have to. <laughs> I will accept reparations via Patreon, (coughs) Steemit, and or Bitcoin. Uh. To be fair, the length of this episode was quite trying, but also allowed for an initially reasonable-sounding Kevin Tucker to talk long enough to tie his own noose. A major section of this episode is, of course, KT laying out what PRIMAL ANARCHY means, which is confusing as it kind of seems to mean everything, but also nothing. It apparently doesn't mean that you're either nomadic hunter-gatherers or you're civilized, nor is it ideological, But it just so happens that nomadic hunter-gatherers were the most egalitarian societies to ever exist, and basically all time moving forward from that point has been a fall from grace. Hmm. KT and Soul also discuss coronavirus, with Kevin handing out one of the stock radical reactions to said virus, mainly that it is exactly as described by experts, and thus people are right to be as scared as they are, and haha anti siv told you so. Last and certainly not least, KT conjures the specter of (laughs) ego-fascism. Laying that beautiful hot turd of a boogeyman at the doorstep of A-News and Little Black Cart, who are obviously card-carrying members of the pro-genocidal cartel Amen.
0: Memes, internet culture and tech support. An hour and 15 minutes from the Uncivilized podcast. An interview with anarchist puppeteer, comic and meme lord, Feral Meme. The conversation bounces around quite a bit, but mostly follows the theme of how social spaces have changed in the anarchist world since the dawn of the new millennium. As you might guess, the contemporary examples given mostly happen online, but Firo's long history with physical anarchist spaces helps to show the parallels and differences between these two spheres of relationships. There is also an extended discussion of what is called ecofascism, or at least the space seeded by the left's abandonment of radical environmentalism being taken up by people on the right. I'm still not totally convinced on that though.
2: Topic of the week, anger and enmity. Growing up, I would usually read the newspaper every day. I remember leafing through it, reading the articles, looking at the photographs, and how much anger it often caused me to feel. My teenage brain frequently had trouble understanding how people could be so terrible to each other and everything around them. The news was exasperating and helped to cement my growing ideas as an anarchist. In this topic of the week, we're looking at how anger and enmity have impacted your anarchist ideas. How do you find the conditions of the existent to be revolting? What kind of impact has anger and enmity had on your anarchist ideas? On the opposite end, what advice would you offer to other anarchists struggling to control a healthy level of anger and opposition? Hello, Anarchy Land. Nice to be talking to you all again. Ariel here, and I have with me today Tori. Hello. Hello, Tori. Welcome. Thank you for coming and talking to us. Thanks for having me. I am interested in Tori's response to this because you grew up in a relatively normal household. (laughs) <laughs> um in terms of your expectations of how you would engage with society and being social and being a a well adjusted person and usually anger is not really appropriate or allowed or is discouraged in those environments i grew up in an environment where anger was wholly encouraged uh so um yeah tell me about your anger experience tell me about you, where your when you found your enmity
3: Well, I would say considering my experience as a black child in a household full of people who consider themselves pro-black but also um, are pretty elitist and have a general distaste for poor people, um, I grew to have that kind of hostility towards my own family really easily. Especially in elementary school, and so I think I remember like my first remember my first memory of anger in elementary school that I can like vividly remember is when I came to school. It was the beginning of the year, third grade, and the first thing this girl Nevedita said to me was, "Your nose is too big." <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "Wait, what the fuck?" How do you have a concept already of, like, whose nose is too big and, like, what's a normal nose, you know? Mm -hmm. Especially because I was really curious child, so I was like, uh, all of us have different shit going on, you know? Um, Who's to say what is normal? Like, all of this is new. And I remember adults lying a lot and catching them in lies, and so feeling like the whole world was up for me to explore, basically, and Mm -hmm. figure out my own truths about And so I was really frustrated that she would tell me my nose was too big. And I remember coming home to tell my dad about it and him talking about how, you know, like about Eurocentric features and really celebrating blackness and everything. And I remember being really angry that someone thought it was okay to say that to me, you know, Um, and I wasn't really into fighting until middle school, so I didn't know what to do with that kind of rage, but I never liked that girl. Like I never, I could never get over that. And so, oh, I see what you mean. yeah. And so, <clears throat> and I remember that really building this insecurity for me, not really about my nose, but more about my blackness and feeling like I didn't fit in because of that feeling like, um, and I didn't go to a school with very many black students, but there were black students, maybe five out of 300 or 10 out of 300. Um, and I remember trying to talk to them kind of about it and they didn't really have a concept of it yet either. And I remember being very frustrated with that. Mm -hmm. And I remember trying to tell my teacher about it. And I think I had a white third grade teacher. So maybe this is third or fourth grade. I know one of those years I had a black teacher, one of my only black teachers in my experience. And then um, my teacher just kind of brushed it off like it wasn't a big deal Mm -hmm. and um, told me to relax, you know, and to forgive her. And I was like, forgive her. She didn't apologize. You know, like, <laughs> I don't understand. And I just remember my little self being so frustrated, um, not just in the, like, immediate, but just as the whole process unfolded of people not listening to me, really, and my dad just kind of brushing off, like, oh, just love yourself. Like, we're Black. That's enough, you know? And not really giving me more tools to unpack what I was feeling. I hate to say unpack. Like, to really wrestle with, the uncomfortableness and the anger that I felt at feeling out of place. Um, and it took a really long time to feel more comfortable being on the margins of the world and realizing that most people suck. But that's that's the first, like that was my entry point into that thought process is like third grade, being like, wait a second, this bitch called me, told my, told me my nose was too big. The teacher doesn't give a fuck and told me to just forgive her. And even my own dad is like, you know, yeah, white people suck, ha ha ha. But that's all I got from him, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and how does that sound to you? Does that make sense? Yeah, of course it makes sense. That feels like my—I don't know. That's not yeah. like I didn't really get bullied hardcore because I went to a Berkeley school and they yeah. were really on top of that kind of Absolutely. shit. But I had a lot of little anti-black little microaggressions like that. Sure. In a time um, when we, when a time when we didn't have those words to we talk had about none them. of that language. We have uh, none of that language.
2: No, that makes sense. Um, yeah, sorry. I got lost in thought there for a second. Uh, because when you, because no one wants children to be angry because children's lives are supposed to be full of light and goodness and happiness and play and, and you should never have to deal with anything that's too serious. And And so when children have anger and when their anger is, of course, legitimate, no one knows what to do with it and uh uh i it's off but i but i have a friend who had a his father wasn't a bad father but his father misbehaved as a father a lot like mm-hmm. he didn't live up to fatherness often um and or did things that were selfish or did things that didn't put his son in the position that his, his son should be in um and he did that a lot in his life and it was complicated because Just as often, he was an incredibly good father. So it would be this back and forth and this push-pull. And he would be confused a lot. And he would not be sure, did it mean that some days his dad loved him and some days his dad didn't? Or he, he just, he didn't know. And now he is an adult. And I met him when he was, just before he became a teenager. And at some point in his teenage years, I told him, you know, it's okay for you to be angry at your father. And that moment wasn't particularly anything, spectacular, revelationary, anything. He just looked at me and went, huh, okay. Mm. But then in his 20s, we had a conversation about it, and that moment changed his life. It had never occurred to him that he could be mad at his parent. He had, It had never occurred to him that anger was acceptable or legitimate mm. a feeling towards anyone like that in his wife right. and me giving him that permission entirely changed the way he could see his father and his ability to deal with his father and 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 all of these things and and i i knew that his, their relationship changed a little bit but it didn't it didn't show up in his outward behavior enough for me to really know until he actually told me so kids don't get to be angry uh so we're talking about anger on a much larger scale right Absolutely. we're talking about um, that people suck. We're talking about the world is a horrible place. Uh, this is particularly relevant for me right now, uh, as I watched the video of two. Yeah, oh my, of a my.
3: And these Ahmad Ahmad Ahmad. I don't. I, I don't know. Their I'm not sure name, though. It's two As for sure. Okay,
2: so that's Ahmad. Um, and so if, for those of you who have not heard about this two white men in a truck basically ran down a black man who was jogging in his neighborhood and killed him and this was in georgia and georgia has a citizens arrest law on the books so they were their defenses that they were stalking him tracking him because they thought he was a suspect in a string of robberies and they tried to arrest him and he resisted that arrest. And so they killed him. So as of this date, Saturday, May 9th, they have not been indicted. Finally, one of them uh, is an ex cop. It's an ex cop and his son. Finally, one of the, a a district attorney has said, because it bounced around from jurisdiction, jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Uh, Because no one wanted to take responsibility for it under the guise of conflict of interest, even though, of course, we know that that's not what it's about. (laughs) (laughs) So finally, a district attorney has said they want to indict them. They're going to put them in front of a grand jury. But with pandemic circumstances, grand jury, the soonest a grand jury is going to convene is going to be sometime in late June. uh, And they're just free people in the world. And at the moment, by the laws in the state of Georgia, they have not committed a crime even though it could not be more obvious that in a lynching lynch video happened. <laughs> that a lynching happened. No, exactly. So combine that with the amount that I am reading about this pandemic that is all of the white men in charge in this country telling the rest of the country that they have to go back to work and stripping if you are offered your job and you don't take it back, you don't qualify for any benefits, even if your reason for not going to work is because you're you're afraid of getting sick. Uh, They're putting liability shields in place to protect corporations so that if corporations and companies don't take the action that they need to to protect their workers and their workers get sick, they can't be held liable for that. And just piling on all kinds of things like this. So the people in power are saying over and over and over again, In just the crassest way possible, we don't care about you. And of course, I've been an anarchist for a long time, and I know that the bosses and the capitalists and the state don't actually care about you. It's just so glaringly, almost like they're laughing at you why they say it. And so these two things have kind of pushed me more into a place of, I really just want to burn down everything. Like... Seriously, I thought about cashing out the savings account and going to Georgia.
0: <laughs>
3: Relatable content. Um, I don't know how these people get to stay alive, but, and, you and know. They,
2: and yet they do. And they are. And, and it's so... been like this.
3: And it's been like this for a long time. And it doesn't, I don't know, it's it's a hard position to be in in the constant rage, you know, because I feel such a, a rancor towards these people. Mm-hmm. Um and not just these people, but these corporations that get to be kind of nameless, like the individuals making these decisions get to be nameless. Um, and so we're not able to find out exactly who is deciding you have to go back to work. And if you don't, we're not going to pay you. Well, we'll
2: get to find out on the legislative side. Yeah. But obviously there's a whole bunch of CEOs and CFOs and business people sitting in cabinet rooms. At the White House having these conversations whose input is being taken and you may or may not get to find out who those people are but but it doesn't matter. Yeah it
3: definitely doesn't. But
2: why doesn't it matter because because it's okay. Like it's not okay, but
3: that's how, but it's functions. gonna
2: it's going to exist as if it's okay because it's going to be undone. It's going to be done, and it's going to be nearly impossible to get it undone. And the price that is going to be paid is that people are going to die. Yeah. And they are not the people that look like the people who are in charge or have their life or have their experience. And so all of that is going to be okay,
3: yeah.
2: And I'm very aware of the cliche of the angry black woman and i am also at this point in my almost 50 years on the planet very aware that you can't live in an angry place all the time
3: i don't it's know i feel i feel very much good for you it's definitely not good for you yeah. i feel the i feel more on the hulk vibe though you know like that sure. I'm, al- I'm always angry like that's the secret right. um and sometimes i can reel it in to just being mildly annoyed Mm -hmm. at my existence Mm -hmm. Um, but that is still coming from a place of anger and I mean we're talking about black people right now but we're also talking about just all the marginalized poor people affected by affected most by COVID and we're talking about native people you know like we're talking Mm -hmm. about Native people and people with terrible access to health care or no access to health care. And but the truth is, is that it's actually bigger than that.
2: At this point, we are talking about your average middle class American who cannot work from home, which is tons. Right. Like
3: That's millions of people. But that
2: is millions of people. If you, if you have the kind of job that flexes the privilege that you can work at home, that's one thing. But most jobs aren't that. And these are the people who, as we shed more and more restrictions, are the people who are going to go have, have to go back to work. So the details of this in specific are not actually the point. The point is this is all, like I've been angry for a long time and I've kind of found a peace with my anger and I'm at a point where I don't have peace with my anger anymore And so it was interesting to me that this topic came up. I mean, it shouldn't be because, yeah, anybody who... I think that this is what everyone is thinking about because there are lots of, you know, your average, everyday, run-of-the-mill American, Republican, or Democrat who are also angry about what's going on in the world right now and the way things are playing out. So...
3: What do we do with that anger? What do you do? What do I do with that anger? Yeah. I think... Well, first, first question was what kind of impact has this anger had on my anarchist ideas? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's pretty much the fuel, the original fuel to my anarchist ideas. Yeah. What, you know? Um, and then the second part of that is what advice do I offer to have a healthy level of anger in opposition? I mean, I think that that comes... To coalition building and community, which I hate to be that bitch who's always like, community, community. Yeah, you see him looking at you. <laughs> I'm giving you the side eye. But, you know, <laughs> being able to ground yourself with like-minded people kind of takes that exhausted energy away. And it helps me kind of recharge when I know I don't have to explain over and over why I'm so mad today. You know, like a man sure. was lynched yesterday. Sure. That's why I'm so angry. Or that's why I'm so sad. Or that's why I'm just in a laugh sure. out vibe. Um, so that's part of it, and I know that that sounds really elementary, but there is something to having a a group of people who are on that same page. So, so that's how I'm gonna I'm gonna make you make you extend that out a little bit, okay? Because
2: you have lived or live in the world of anarchy Facebook, anarchy Twitter, and I don't really, and we know that. Far more people are anarchists on the internet alone than they are in communities of people together. Right. And so.
3: Well, right now, most of our communities are broken up anyway because of COVID. It's it's true. And so it is forcing us to rely on.
2: But so talk about that. Talk about being just one of the, you know, whatever, tens of thousands of people on a Twitter feed and that being where you find your like-minded voices, your like-minded people, your, uh, and, and try, and try to answer the same question. What advice would you offer to other anarchists struggling to control a healthy level of anger or opposition?
3: Take a risk, reach out to people that you, you know, even if they're not exactly, I mean, I think so much of this is reaching out to people who maybe are not in the exact same wave as you, but Mm -hmm. You know, even if it's bordering something that you agree with or think is interesting, just engaging in that, like picking up, picking at those ideas. You, uh-huh. Does that make sense? Yes. And um, I don't know, not everything you do has to be like explicitly anarchist sure. together. Your community things can be um, just... Movies or books or sure other media, yeah, that's interesting to you. And well, and in about fact, those, it would
2: seem that in these times right now, actually finding things that will distract you from news and politics for part of your day is a requirement. Absolutely, because if you just mainline this all day long, it's gonna break you.
3: I definitely think creating some kind of routine that gives you that where you choose the amount of time and at what time of day you engage with these things. You know, if it's the morning, like you first wake up, you find out how shitty the world is today. (laughs) You know, you shoot the shit with your homies and then you have to go exercise or you have to go watch a movie or you have to go do something else. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a two times a day thing because I like to hurt myself. So I I do <laughs> the morning routine. <laughs> yeah. I like that morning routine and I find out who's dead. And then in the evening routine, I find out what's what's on the chopping block for tomorrow pretty much. So... Um, but yeah, definitely limiting those things because it's de- it's so easy to fall into the five hours of Twitter a day or five hours of Facebook a day because there's just so much content and everyone's at home. But those limits are important because when you're angry and in the angry mindset, you can just keep refueling and refueling that um, and it will not disintegrate like it won't. Yeah, you won't be able to um, pull yourself out of that after a certain point.
2: Yeah. There's a writer and director. I like who does a podcast. And he was talking about how he had to figure out how to change the patterns of his life because he's an early riser. Cause he likes to, likes to get his, his creative work and his heavy lifting done earlier in the day. So he's up at like six and he sits in front of his computer and he's just going to check the news and see what's going on and then start getting his research ball rolling so he can start getting the writing portion of his day. And. By the time he's done with the check the news part, it's four o'clock. Ooh. And he just wants to, like, get Ooh. high and crawl in bed and watch movies and not move for the rest of the day because it's all just it's so too much. so numbing.
3: Yeah, yeah, and yeah,
2: yeah. all that, none of that seemed insane to me. And there was definitely a time where I'd be like, oh, you are struggling. But that just feels almost like that has to be the status quo <laughs> for so many people right yeah, now. Yeah,
3: it definitely has. I mean, I think the last <laughs> thing I'll say on this is I don't know how many of Our listeners need to hear permission to be angry, you know, Uh, but not having that guilt weighing you down and not punishing yourself for being upset about things you should be upset about. Um, I think, Ariel, when I was a lot younger, I think when I was like 16 or 17, you said to me, I said something about being angry and a black woman and some white person saying that to me. And you were like, well, you should be angry. Look at this world. And if they're not angry too, what's wrong with them? And I was like, wow, I feel so seen right now. I thought I was crazy this whole time. Yeah, you were a pretty angry (laughs) 17-year-old for sure. Just angry every day. And that was not useful all the time. But the point is you can be angry. That's allowed.
2: Yeah. So at the risk of sounding too much like a self-help show, (laughs) anarchists. Stay strong. Be angry. Be angrier. I think a, a lot of y'all aren't angry enough. Really? A lot of them? Yeah. Ooh. Uh, but you know don't let it bring you down cuz we all got to weather this shit. Okay. Have a good time. day, in- Anarchy Land. See you next
0: time. <laughs>
1: This podcast! This week's podcast was sound edited by Greg. The What's New was written and read by Chisel and Greg. There will be an editorial at some point this week. And we thank Ariel and a friend for their help with the topic of the week.
0: To learn more, anarchist and anti political books, pamphlets, and other material are available at littleblackheart.com. Woohoo! For news by and or about anarchists and up to the minute commentary, see you at anarchistnews.org and or the anarchist news IRC chat room linked on A News.